Hey everyone, this is Will from Beijing, China, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. As the whole world is focusing on the tension at the border between Russia and Ukraine, and needless to say, we don't know if there's going to be a war between those two countries. However, as we are speaking right now, there are many international countries are still somehow getting looped into the conversation. For example, the country of China, and somehow even some of the countries in the continent of Africa. We are in the year 2022, and how should we understand the relationship between China and some of the countries in Africa? And by the way, if you haven't found out, Americans today, they're pulling themselves away from the African continent. And what gives? So that's why today it's my great honor to invite a famous and a, a profound journalist. His name is Chris Ogumodiri, and he's associate editor with World Polit Politicals Review. His coverage of African politics, international relations, and security has appeared in War on the Rocks, Mail and Guardian, The Republic, Africa is a Country, and other publications. Chris, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Chris, I want to get started with something more relevant to our international viewers at this moment. We know that in China this week, it's fairly busy. And not only because this ongoing Olympic competitions, but also everyone is talking about how this country is actually gaining attention, not only from the Western Hemisphere, but also from this African continent. So my first question to you, Chris, is how significant that to see some of the leaders from the African nations to attend and appear at the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympic? Mm. Yeah, it's fairly significant, you know. Um Africa, African countries and China have had a long dated, long dated relationship, which actually spans longer than, you know, is commonly assumed, you know, whenever you read in typically Western press, they talk about the last 20 years. But in reality, like, at least if you want to scope it to modern contemporary times, like African relationships with China date back decades, you know, I remember um, as a young boy, my mother would tell me things about uh, when, you know, when she was growing up, uh, her mother and her grandmother were traders in Lagos, Nigeria, and, you know, they had uh, Chinese business partners, they had, uh, they sold Chinese goods, they had Chinese um, commercial relationships, and this is like, my mom grew up in the 50s and 60s, mm. you know, this is literally six, seven decades ago. And this is not just Nigeria, this is other parts of the continent, so on the, uh, you know, in East Africa and Southern Africa and West Africa, where we're from, and in North Africa. So the fact that African leaders attended the opening ceremony, as well as other exhibitions of um, the relationship between Africa and China is simply testament to the fact that this is a long dated relationship that's perceived to be mutually beneficial for China, for Africa, you know, African countries and African people want broader relationships with the world. Mm. They are looking for industrialization, they're looking for economic development, you know, all of the things that African countries want are they perceive that, you know, relations with China are a means of getting there. And when they look at the rest of the world with Europe, with North America, 
the United States. What they see is a pullback. You know, with what they see is reduced trade, borders are closing, um, economic nationalism, tariffs, things like that. But when they look at the relationship with China, it's growing in leaps and bounds for the most part. So for them, it's why not? Why aren't we going to? deepen relations with a country that takes interest in our affairs. Why aren't we going to take interest in a country and with people and their leaders who are, you know, whose interests dovetail with ours? When they look at, as I said, elsewhere, they don't see that. They don't see what they hear from Western countries is criticisms of China without a substantive alternative, without a counter offer. What, what they see is, you know, security partnerships, you know, with the United States and African countries, with European countries mm. and uh, African countries. But when they look at China, they see trade, they see investment, they see infrastructural development. So why not? Mm. Well, Chris, you know, as you are speaking right now, one thing that we have to understand that under the current government in China, the famous project is called One Belt, One Road Initiative, which we can trace this project all the way back several years ago. And of course, that both you and I, we understand it's an ongoing project that really involved more than 20 or 30 countries. And needless to say that many African countries actually are looking forward to this project and contributed to the wealth, I mean the general wealth, this economic boom to the project. But meanwhile, Chris, undeniably speaking, that from this Western and from some of the countries in the European side, they are not seeing this as a mutual agreement, or they're not seeing China as taking the lead on this. As a matter of fact, many times, if I can paraphrase it, as what we called a debt trap for some of the countries in Africa. Believe me, it's fair to say that not every single country can actually can get looped into this project. But once you're in it, we have to know there's a win-win situation. So from your perspective, do you think that it's necessary for the Western or from the European uh, side to examine if this project actually is a beneficial, it's a good package for the whole world, or it's only the benefit solely to China? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure if you saw, I wrote this uh, piece a couple, I guess a couple of months ago um, about the uh, so-called dead track diplomacy, which mm. you alluded to. Um, this started with the issue with the Gondan Airport, which uh, allegedly was going to be seized by That's the right. Chinese government. The whole thing started from an article which was published in the Uganda uh, newspaper, which was poorly sourced. It didn't um, get the facts correctly. Uh, it was very sensationalist. Uh, you know, it misunderstood. Uh, it talked about the sovereign immunity, but you know, I spoke to a bunch of uh, international commerce lawyers who told me and read a lot of uh, other commentary by other specialists who said, you know, that phrase has a different meaning as far as international mm. commercial law is concerned. So, and that journalists didn't understand it. Like I also read in other in Nigeria, for example, when a similar uh, topic came up in 2020, where the, the Minister of Transportation in that country talked about um, sovereign immunity again, mm. and a similar piece was written, it was poorly understood. So, you know, that's the background, right? But then I noticed immediately 
a lot of, especially not only, but a lot of especially Western commentators, journalists, politicians, you know, think tankers just ran with the story. Like, That's aha, right. this is what we told you that trap diplomacy, That's you know, right. it's neocolonialism and all, all of this stuff. And I noticed that, first of all, that was wrong, number mm. one, because that's not what was happening. Um, there were, uh, by the admission of the Ugandan government, there were some mistakes that they had made as far as the, uh, the negotiation with the terms and conditions of the loan. But the, as far as the central claim of that article that the airport was going to be seized was wrong. Mm. And there was no attempt to actually check if it was true or if it was not. <laughs> and then I wrote this long thread which got some um, engagement essentially talking about what i did write about in that article that here's what i see when i hear um debt trap diplomacy like it's an agenda it's part of this geopolitical competition with you know western countries but especially the u.s where anything that makes china look mm. bad they're going to run with it it's debt trap diplomacy it's bad infrastructure projects in african countries they're not going to check the facts they're not going to ask questions they're not going to you know think about what african countries want because mm. that's also important that is a thing that i always see whenever this topic comes about and this is what i see a lot when you know i read about debt trap diplomacy and a new cold war as it were it's always this binary framing and that african countries are spectators there's never this understanding that hey maybe african countries want to engage with china maybe african countries have interest of their own maybe african countries don't want to be pulled into a, a so-called cold war maybe and you know when you talk to when i talk to African policy makers and political leaders, they always say to me, and this is across the board in the continent, mm. that look, we don't want to be pulled into a Cold War. Our relationships with China are beneficial. We understand that. They understand that. And we want the rest of the world to understand that. So when they hear, um, like, Secretary of State Antony Blinken talk about, you know, the United States... Uh, um, is the is a better alternative, you know, implicitly, not directly, but this right, is essentially right. what he was saying when he came to Nigeria and Kenya and saying how, you know, essentially implicitly that Chinese uh, relationships are damaging for uh, African countries, you know, and then you had the, the general commander of AFRICOM who said something similar a couple, uh, I think, last year. So what you see is this attempt to besmirch the Chinese mm. reputation. And unfortunately, it does have some resonance because when you look at some countries where genuine attempts or um, instances of um, malfeasance on the part of Chinese companies and individuals that have happened in those countries or, you know, like in Zambia with its debt issues, those have been blown up into a larger statement of right. Africa as a whole. So in some parts of the country, there is some resonance because of genuine instances of malfeasance. But in the broader picture, the, that nuance of what's happening in East Africa and Southern Africa and West Africa and Central Africa, it's missing. And it is because of this geopolitical um, um, rivalry of sorts where China is the boogeyman mm. and the West is where the good people. You know, Chris, again, going back to what you said, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, last year, not even last year, but a couple years ago, that when the word called disinformation came out, people began to understand or people finally woke up to this idea that some of the informations online 
could be or was misleading. Because given the condition that everyone can be what we called a citizen journalist, you know, a quote, however, without the credibility or without knowing how to fact check some of the resources. Now, with that said, we know that since former U.S. President Donald Trump was in the White House and China and America was in this hot and cold relationship and eventually that will basically led to a completely cold deadlock. But meanwhile, Chris, I think you might agree with me on this, but right now, U.S. and China are in this another race or in this competitive relationship, especially for the continent of Africa. You know, as you mentioned, that Secretary of State Tony Blinken that traveled to some of the countries in Africa pinpointed some of the significance how U.S. was supposed to be reliable or U.S. supposed to be more trustworthy than China since China has always been this magician and you never tell you what's behind the curtain, etc. I'm not going to go back to repeat that. But Chris, why do you think U.S. today is in this competition with China? And excuse me if I can be straightforward is... Do you think that U.S., especially under current administration in terms of foreign policy with African continents, are actually losing bases? So in other words, they are so eager to get in close with the countries in Africa so that they don't want to lose further behind what China is actually progressing in the African continent. Mm. So I'll start with the first question uh, as to why... Um, the U.S. and China are locked in a um, geopolitical strategic competition, right. as the terminology in Washington is referred to. I think it's a broader, uh, in a sense, Donald Trump essentially was a uh, vanguard for this shift in Washington, a bipartisan shift, by the way, because I think it's pretty clear at this point that both the Democrats and Republicans are on board with this competition mm. with China. You know, I commented on this tweet by uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, I think a week ago, two weeks ago, when she talked about uh, Chinese uh, trade activities and the behavior of Chinese companies, or I might be wrong with details, but that was sure. like the gist of it. So it's clear that you know this is a liberal Democrat who's saying right. that a conservative Republican could say. You know, So there is a bipartisan consensus that China is uh, the main geopolitical rival and I think this is a realization that uh, uh, Beijing has come to a point where it sees itself as a, as an equal the, uh, or a competitor at the at the minimum. So, and this is not uh, Beijing is pushing back in some ways against things that it would have let go a couple decades ago, and that makes a lot of people in Washington very uncomfortable, especially mm. when you look at the landscape of the world, where you know American influence is declined relatively. You know, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. And that makes a lot of, especially primacists, of which in Washington, those who hold power, that's a majority, right? So right. a lot of people are not comfortable with a world where American unipolar power is essentially what sets the terms in the so-called international order. And that's what drives this geopolitical competition that we want. America wants to be, you know, the top dog, as it were. Mm. America wants to dictate the terms and conditions of international politics and anything that looks like a competition is unwelcome in Washington. That's, so that's right. the big picture. 
as far as in Africa, so I, this is one thing I always kind of I always try to explain, which I feel like people don't appreciate as much. The U.S. is locked in this you know hot and cold um, pattern where. On the one hand, the United States wants to, or at least it recognizes the vitality of, you know, the young people in Africa and, you know, the majority of the continent, by the way, is young people. In That's average right. age on the continent is 20, you know. You know, in Nigeria, where uh, my family is from, it's 18. You wow. Know? In some countries, it's 16. You know, Africa is very young. West Africa is the youngest sub-region in the world, mm. you know, literally. You know, in countries like Mali, Nigeria, Guinea, you know, the uh, median age is 18, 19. So this, this is a very young continent. Mm. A lot of interesting, beautiful, dynamic stuff is going on in sports and culture and technology, but also in politics. And, you know, of course, the, the legacy of colonialism means that, you know, the Western influence is very much, um, the legacy is very much entrenched in Africa and, you know, uh, former British colonies, former French colonies. And, you know, these are all Western spheres of influence, which the United States has benefited from mm. because those countries are allies of the United States. But more so when you look at Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ghana, these are large English-speaking countries where the United States does have a lot of cultural influence and relevance. But And the United States wants to essentially benefit from that, but does not want to invest the kinds of exactly. um, That's right. significant um, efforts that it would take to deepen that relationship. So as I said, trade has declined with U the U.S. and African countries. Um, political relationships are mostly state to state. Um, the length and breadth of American partnership with African countries is mostly security, the military, mm. the defense, intelligence. It's not commercial relationships. It's not investments. It's not you know, physical infrastructure. It's not cultural exchanges. It's not the things that, you know, um, I guess China is doing, mm. right? And the United States is locked in this hot and cold of we want the influence, but we're not willing to invest. And I wrote something about this a couple of months ago, explaining why that is. It's a couple of things. One, they simply don't know any other way. Like the United States has had a pattern of relationships with the African countries, which is built around, oh, you must, you must hold elections. You know, you must have good governance reforms, right. neoliberal reforms. Uh, and, you know, in the post 9-11 era, security partnerships. And that's it, you know, there's not a lot of economics, there's not a lot of industrialization, there's not a lot of growth, you know, when you look at the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, uh, the AFCFTA, the United States is trying to pursue bilateral agreements with right. you know, countries like Kenya, with Morocco. Meanwhile, the Chinese, uh, China, supports the AFC. That's right. By and large, of course. Um, China, has, at this point, is the largest trade partner of the African continent as a whole. You know, trade between Africa and China, two-way trade between Africa and China last year was, I think, $200 billion, you know, dollars. In, uh, with the U.S., it's a fraction of that. With Europe, it's a fraction of that. And ultimately, that reflects the fact that the U.S. does not view Africa as strategic. It doesn't. When you look That's at right. American interests, they are Europe, um, they are the Pacific, um, I guess um, Central and South America, because it's within what the U.S. considers to be its sphere of influence, you know, the Monroe Doctrine and all that stuff. And I guess the Middle East, although that's changing, but 
by and large, Africa is you know peripheral mm. uh, to American interest. Uh, Beijing does not look at it like that. Beijing looks at the African continent not just as a uh, means to geopolitical influence, but you know as a partner of economics, mm. trade, uh, green investment, technology. You know, in Nigeria, well, you know, in Senegal and other parts of West Africa, when you look at smartphones, for example, the majority of people use Chinese smartphones, mm. Chinese laptops, mm. you know, Chinese gadgets. You know, you know, when you look around, who's uh, building the bridges, the roads, the trains, a lot of that is Chinese. So, you know, you don't see that from the American side, from the European side. So to a lot of people, it's very evident, and that includes me, it's very evident that the United States does not regard Africa as important or important enough. Mm. And that's clear. It's simply, it's clear from how Washington, the uh, political class, engages with the uh, topic of Africa. It's clear from how the media, from how think tank, from academics, in uh, Beijing, it's the opposite. You know, uh, Xi Jinping engages with African heads of states and government directly. That's you right. don't get that with, with the United States. You know, when I remember the, uh, the United States, um, the UN General Assembly last year, UNGA, where Biden didn't meet with a single African head of state. But in previous years, Xi Jinping would meet with lots of African right. heads of states and government. He would attend uh, the forum on China-Africa cooperation in person and would have bilaterals with African heads of states and government and their uh, cabinet. You know, it's the things like that that just, you know, tell the story. You know, actions speak louder than words. That's and right. When you look at the actions from the United States, there's just not a lot. Right. Well, Chris, you know, one thing that you pointed out, and again, I 100% agree with you, is indeed, actions speak louder than words. Now, let's continue with, with our conversation. I really appreciate one of the articles that you wrote, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it came out this year, that regarding this whole democracy summit, that it was initiated by Joe Biden, who is the current president in the U.S., you know, for centuries that, ironically, that people tend to believe that when we look at the word democracy, or when we look at this full measure of democracy, most likely that we would turn into the United States. But somehow, people tend to believe that today, I mean, not again, when I say people, that means international communities. People will say U.S. today, it's no longer the role model for democracy, you know, given many conditions. But meanwhile, as Secretary of the State, Tony Blinken's travel around the world and starting to believe or starting to spread the idea to say we need to bring democracy to any other countries, especially in the continent of Africa. Isn't that ironic? that today even america even americans on average no longer believe democracy is being well preserved domestically why bother to bring this or even continue this journey in other continent are you with me you see so so does that so does that mean that african countries today that can rely on america to be the savior or to be the solution to the political uh, uh, corruption or to the political distortion what is your take on that yeah no that is a very good uh, way to frame this that's certainly what i've said in the past you know on 
both in social media and my writings, but also in conversations with people. I hear this a lot from um, uh, policymakers, you know, administration officials across the continent. I remember um, on the uh, January 6th last year, of course, the storm on the Capitol. I remember um, when I saw a, a cabinet minister in um, Cote d'Ivoire a couple of weeks after, and we were talking about just world politics, and then it got the topic got onto uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden, and then we talked about the, the Capitol storming. And then, you know, he says something to the effect of, you know, uh, and so the Cote d'Ivoire had elections a couple of months before that were controversial. And then the United States put out a statement and then he said something to the effect of uh, here they go, you know, lecturing the world and us about our elections. But, you know, they're essentially attempting a coup and things that's like that. right. And yeah, that, <laughs> that's something I've heard a lot across the board, and not just um, Cote d'Ivoire, but in Nigeria, from friends in Kenya, from policymakers in Zambia, or, you know, across the continent. This is a, I guess, um, frustration that a lot of not just people in government, but average citizens and people in civil society have with the U.S. and its democracy promotion. It's mm. essentially they come to lecture uh, Africans and African governments of, oh, good governance, frequent elections, uh, the rule of law and things like that. But then what you've had um, for, for a long time, but it really came to the forefront with Donald Trump's presidency, where you don't follow the rule of law. That's right. The elections aren't free. You know, uh, African American voters were their votes were suppressed in right. a lot of places. You know, they had to wait in long lines in their communities, and there's been several states who have attempted to tighten um, voter ID laws and other means of voter suppression. You know, there's a lot of political corruption in the United States. So where does the U.S. get the moral ground to lecture us right. in the, rest of the world? about, you know, good governance, as it were. And in that um, newsletter that you referred to on the Democracy Summit, there was uh, a commentator who I spoke to who said exactly that. Like, if well, rather than frame this as the U.S. trying to, you know, um, gather the forces of democracy, why, does, why doesn't the U.S. take a step back and be introspective about its problems? That's right. Its democracy internally. You know, you look at the fact that the, the Republican Party is essentially uh, an authoritarian party at mm. this point, which you can find in other parts of the world. This is a party that stands to win Congress in November. So right. what is the story about the uh, U.S. as the shining city on a hill and all of this stuff that it sells itself as, you know, that's not the case, you know. So why don't we be a little more humble about the fact that every country has its difficulties with governance and let's try not to speak from a place of uh, complacence with ourselves mm. and a superiority complex. Yeah, That's right, Chris. Now, again, as you and I, we exchange our conversations before the show and New York Times that came out with an article, you know, if I can paraphrase it and you remember as well, is how under Joe Biden, this administration decided to pull out the financial assets or financial packages to African continents, which, you know, if I can put it in a mild way, it could hurt many countries indeed. And of course, because again, as you mentioned, the trade relationship between African countries and the U.S. decreased drastically. I mean, not just due to the political reason, but also going back to this economic and social changes as well. So I want to know from your perspective, once that deal became 
reality. Well, once that deal or the whole uh, uh, decision came into picture, how would you think that this going to influence or maybe uh, further damage the relationship between African countries and U.S.? But meanwhile, I think that could give a lot more leverage to China because again, China is looking for ways to plug in, and again, China has never uh, uh, said that on the front to say we are trying to replace United States. But meanwhile, we're trying to say, hey, listen, once you lose that side, we are the one who's always by your side, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a question that when you ask uh, people in government across Africa, but also outside of government, and, you know, the private sector and civil society and journalism, this is the one question they will ask you. If the if China is so bad and it's this it's that well what's the alternative mm. right so Biden has pitched uh, B3W um, you know um, under the Trump administration they had Prosper Africa which essentially went nowhere um, the EU is set to unveil uh, the global gateway although that's not specifically for Africa it's for the right. broader developing world but Africa they say will be a large component of that you know. African people broadly will always ask you, well, if China is not doing this, it's not doing it, why don't you try to do it? Why don't you try right. to be better at it? And as I said, when you look at the uh, preponderance of evidence, there's just not a lot there as far as the U.S. is concerned. When you go to any African city, whether it's Lagos, whether it's Dakar, where I'm at, whether it's Nairobi, whether it's Johannesburg, you will see Chinese projects, you will see Chinese uh, technology, you will see Chinese individuals and companies, you know, who are part of the community, who are, you know, part of this effort to create an industrial um, process that will help African countries come out, reduce poverty, create wealth, and get to the level of economic development that they want. So it's just not the same as far as the US and Europe is concerned. So the fact that the United States is, you know, coming to this realization that it wants to go into strategic competition with China, thereby reducing its commitments in parts of the world that it regards as peripheral. Well, Africans read the writing on the wall and that just, that's their cue to deepen relationships with China because they understand that the U.S. is a little distracted right now. We're trying to outdo China. So we are, I guess, um, a uh, casualty to that in some sorts, you know, where they're reducing, you know, their uh, investments and things like that and want to focus it in where the, uh, the U.S. feels like it can get the biggest returns on investment. Meanwhile, China is doing the opposite. Mm. At least when you look at the trade portfolio, that's what it tells you. When you look at uh, the forum on China-Africa cooperation and the agreements, the deals that were struck, it's a, sure, there's been an evolution of sorts, but in the broad picture, it's a deepening relationship. So mm. Africans, whether in government or outside of government, can see that. And of course, it's going to give China more leverage. Mm. I mean, why, would you, why wouldn't you take interest in uh, somebody or a group of people take interest in you. That's just common sense. And why would you uh, want to pursue broadened broaden relationships with people who at best tell you nice words and things like that, but it, the substance of a broadened relationship is just not there. So that's the conclusion that Africans can come to. So of course it's going to deepen China's um, leverage as far as relations with the world because it's part of the pattern. And you know, I always try to make this clear to people that 
Africa as a continent is 1.3 billion people. It That's is right. a large continent, you know. And the fact that China um, is interested in pursuing deep relationships with, a, you know, a continent that's almost the same size as its own population, you know, that says a lot. So the fact that the United States cannot understand that Africans don't want to be, you know, casualties of a great uh, power competition is, you know, speaks to the, I guess, strategic, uh, the lack of strategic acumen in Washington. Mm. Chris, I know you're fairly busy. Stay with me. I only have two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about the younger generations, Chris. Now, right now, I am living in Beijing. You know, I can see that how the Chinese millennials today, not only they're actively engaging social impact, but also they are trying to voice their opinions and their views owing to political shifts. So I want to know that since you are on the ground and located in the continent of, of Africa, Chris, can you briefly tell us how would you describe the younger generations today in Africa and how active are they in terms of participating the local or even national political changes or social matters? Mm -hmm. So I would say the youth in, uh, on the continent, which, as I said, are the overwhelming majority, right. are very politically active. You know, <clears throat> as far as let me start with voting. As far as voting, it, it varies. You know, in some parts of the continent, there are you know vibrant, like in Senegal, where turnout rates tend to be relatively high. Mm. You know, they vote in large numbers. If there was a recent local election, around local elections across the country. Um, the young people were a big part of the mobilization, the get out the vote efforts, you know, um, the message dissemination and things like that. So they're very active in Senegal. In like Nigeria, where I'm from, it's, as far as voting, it's a lot different where turnout rates are frankly quite low. Mm. In the last presidential election, it was 35% of the voters who turned out with the youth. It's possibly worse than that, actually. It's maybe 25 or the high 30s um, in parts of Southern Africa. Again, it's much higher, you know, so it varies. But as far as other means of participation, you know, like forming um, activist groups, uh, whether it's uh, um, intellectual spaces, it is very vibrant. Like, I've written a lot in recent years about the growth of uh, protest and social movements mm. in West Africa and beyond. You know, there's been a bunch of them. You know, there's been Fix the Country in Ghana, there's been NSARS in Nigeria, there have been uh, anti um, rape movements in Kenya and South Africa and Zimbabwe. There have been protests against uh, the military in, you know, Chad, in Sudan, in Guinea. You know, there's been so much of substance that's happening with the young people as far as the politics. You know, there's always this rhetoric that I always see uh, typically in Western media about how the young people, you know, are not as active and things like that. That's not what I see. You know, mm. what I see is young people who are frustrated with the um, structure of politics, but are trying to create alternatives to what they, you know, what is uh, on offer. And that's why you see a rise in a lot of social movements. That's why you see a lot of rising. Um, activism. That's why you see a lot of protests. That's why you see a lot of digital activism, as you alluded to with uh, in China, where the millennials and the young people are very digitally connected. Mm. It is the exact same way on the continent, where young people use the internet to do a lot of things, to mm. mobilize themselves, you know, to 
help each other economically and financially. They buy each other's product. They create digital product. They create technological products that you know governments and companies and individuals can use. So the young people are combining their um, ingenuity, their passion for politics, mm. and the fact that they want a better world into a lot of areas, which includes the political. So one thing that I see as the biggest sort of um, bellwether is how in, so there's a bunch of big elections coming up in the next two years across the continent in Nigeria and Kenya. This Kenya will get uh, its election this year, as will Angola, Nigeria, and the um, Democratic Republic of Congo next year, South Africa in 2024. So this will be a test for how the young people can channel all of that energy, all of that passion, all of that creativity into politics. And I guess we will see how that's going to turn out. But the young people are certainly very fired up. You know, I talk to a lot of activists. A lot of I'm friends with a lot of activists. I participated in a lot of social movements, and the energy, the desire, the drive, the vitality—it's all there. It's all there. Chris, I want to end our conversation with what's going on right now, and I'm sure that you also pay attention between Ukraine and Russia at this moment, and throughout the media that Joe Biden has already sent troops to the borders of Ukraine in order to send the messages to the country of Russia and directly actually to the leader, uh, which is Vladimir Putin. I am not going to ask you to analyze the, uh, the tension between Russia and Ukraine, but one thing I want you to help me or maybe help our viewers to understand, do you think, let me rephrase that question this way, how likely do you think that U.S. is actually going to step into to help Ukraine if the war to take place? Because a couple weeks ago, I talked to one of the uh, think tankers who's uh, located in Ukraine for centuries that this person has been saying that it's all a bluff. It's all about the bluffing. U.S., it's not going to officially go to war or it's not going to shoulder the responsibility once Russia decided to take action against Ukraine. So from your perspective, do you think that this time Joe Biden or the entire U.S. government is going to just be a, a bluff, a pep talk? or actually they are going to put action behind their words? Um, as far as uh, sending um, military forces into Ukraine, I do not see that as a possibility at all. And for a lot of reasons, one, there's just not the political consensus to do that. Uh, there's not the public desire either. You know, the, the public is overwhelmingly against a commitment of the American forces to any combat operations, but most especially in um, a country or a region of the world where mm. the, there's not some kind of uh, defense pact or an alliance. Uh, there's certainly, um, from the perspective of uh, the American voter, the American voters and the public, that there are uh, strategic interests, uh, you know, uh, hanging um, in the balance. So I don't see the possibility that uh, the U.S. forces will step in. I don't see the strategic um, desire to do so either because, you know, they're going to be outnumbered. The United right. States is not going to send the equivalent of 100,000 forces to Ukraine. It's not going to do that. So what I think will happen is the United States will continue to uh, maybe scale up what it's been doing already, you know, the deployment of our forces to join up with NATO uh, allies around the border, you know, continue this and we will aid um, covert um, operations in the area uh, in some kind of um, attritional warfare. But I don't think the United States is going to directly get involved for the simple reason that Ukraine is not a NATO ally. And, you know, 
I think as far as the United States is concerned, Joe Biden would rather do the what he considers to be the bare minimum without involving American troops, not least because there's a midterm election mm. in November. And the last thing the Democratic Party wants is to commit American forces, you know, to a conflict which on which will certainly involve the killing of a That's lot of right. American troops in a conflict that, as I said, it is not regarded as strategic to American interest. I just don't see that as a possibility.